From the Museum of Science in Boston, this is Pulsar, a podcast where experts answer questions from you, our audience. Thanks to Facebook Boston for supporting this episode of Pulsar. I'm your host, Jonathan Fanning, and today we're going to be answering questions about food insecurity and food policy during the COVID pandemic with our expert, Sarah Bleich. Sarah is a professor of public health policy at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. And Professor, I think just to get us started and establish a baseline, could you take us back to February of this year? And as the pandemic has progressed, what has shifted in the concerns regarding food systems and the economic fallout? So if we go back to February of this year, we at that point had a long-standing problem with food insecurity. So that's the idea that a person lacks a reliable source of nutritious food. And at the time, it affected about uh, one out of 10 Americans. And that was on average. If you looked among low-income Americans or single moms or Black or Hispanic populations, it was higher. So for example, among low-income populations, it was about one out of three. The other thing that was a big part of the status quo in February is that there were these long-standing federal programs that were specifically designed to deal with issues around food insecurity or hunger. And so the biggest one is called SNAP. Many listeners may know it as food stamps. SNAP stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And around February, it was serving about 38 million Americans each month and half of them were children. And so not surprisingly, there have been big changes to both food insecurity and then participation in SNAP as a result of COVID-19 happening because Many people lost their jobs. We have higher unemployment now than we had during the Great Recession, where it reached a high of about 10%. And as a result, people need help buying food. And we also know that with COVID-19, while it's had a massive economic toll, it's had a bigger toll among Black and brown populations, the same groups who are more likely to be food insecure. And so it's sort of this constellation of factors which are really hurting the most vulnerable members of society. Yeah. You mentioned SNAP there, as well as other food nutrition programs. Have those proven to be resilient, or are we seeing that there are cracks in the system? So we're seeing both. We're seeing strengthening and we're seeing cracks. So in terms of strengthening, one thing that is important about how SNAP, for example, or any of these means-tested programs are designed is that they're designed to be economically responsive. And so as the economy shrinks, automatically more people can participate in the program because they become eligible based on lower income. And so in that sense, the programs are working well. They're designed to grow in times of need, and that is happening. And the other thing that's happening is that through the stimulus bills, Congress has made changes to existing programs to enhance and strengthen them to make them better at meeting people's needs. So one thing we know about SNAP is that while it's very important, it is not adequate. And so the average family of four gets $646 per person per month. That averages to $1.40 per person per meal, which you can imagine is not a lot of money. And it's not enough to buy a meal in 99% of US counties. And so two key things that happened in the Family First Act, which was the second stimulus bill, is that there was a change which meant that all states could request a waiver, which allowed them to increase everyone who wasn't at that max benefit of $646 per month. It allowed everyone who wasn't at the max benefit to get increased to that amount for a few months. And that's called emergency SNAP. So those are good things, but there are also cracks. The fact that rapidly there's been an increase in the number of states where you could use your SNAP benefits online, which wasn't previously allowed, has meant that Many people are going into stores and there's not enough food when they go in there or they can't buy the things that they want. It's also the case that if you have to go to the store, you can't always adhere to strict social distancing guidelines. So there have been a lot of important changes, but the programs need to be further strengthened and expanded to really meet the needs of people right now, which, as you can imagine, they're really acute for some families. Mm -hmm. And as we're talking about food insecurity in general, 
I know you spoke at the 50th anniversary of the White House Conference on Food, Nutrition, and Health back in October. And in general, I think the theme of that conference could be summed up as we as a country no longer struggle so much with lack of calories, but rather distributing healthy calories to at-risk populations. Has COVID changed or reinforced that perspective? So big picture, the problem is is largely the same. And so another way to say what you just said is that we have more than enough calories to feed everyone too much to get it, make everyone gain weight, but the calories are generally not healthy. So, so one problem is that we've got a lot of wastage in the food system. One of the things that we're seeing right now at the very beginning of when COVID happened is these massive changes to the supply chain. So universities shut down, schools shut down. A lot of those orders then for food shut down. And so that meant that it was left in the field and it wasn't picked. Um, and so that definitely created disruption in the supply chain. I think a lot of that has been fixed at this point and things are starting to flow a little bit more regularly. But there's definitely still an issue of we have sufficient calories. Those calories are generally not as healthy as they should be. And they're definitely not evenly distributed in terms of what's healthy and what's not. The other piece that's um, when we think about calories and who has access and who doesn't is thinking about populations where for reasons where they think that they might lose the ability to become U.S. citizens, they are staying away from the federal programs. And this is part of the current administration's posture on immigration. And they passed not too long ago something called the public charge rule, which can deny a path to citizenship for families or individuals who receive certain safety net programs. And that could include SNAP, for example. What that has meant, this concern about if I if I accept these different benefits, am I no longer going to be able to get access to the U.S. as a citizen? It's created a huge strain on the charitable food network. And so you see on the news like these mile-long lines of people waiting at food banks and, and food pantries. And on the one hand, it's great that they're there. They represent a very small slice of food for most people. They're completely overburdened. And that food, which is free to individuals who are qualified, is generally very unhealthy. Mm. So I hear you talking about two different scales of problems. We have short-term needs, the fact that we need immediate increases in funding versus these longer-term systemic problems that have been there for a while. How do you balance those priorities? That's a million-dollar question, and it's, and it's a great one. I, I think on the one hand, we have to consider that the fact that we have long-standing problems with food insecurity didn't happen overnight. And so the solutions are not going to necessarily also happen overnight. That said, we have proven policy strategies that will address issues around people getting enough to eat. And so big picture, I think that we have to focus on short-term gains. Like how do we temporarily increase the size of the SNAP benefit? How do we allow for SNAP benefits to be spent online amongst a broader diversity of retailers? Right now, it's just really the big retailers like the Walmarts and the Amazons, which threatens sort of the economic sustainability of the small shops and farmers. How do we get with benefits online? Those are short-term things that Congress can relatively easily address. Obviously, there are political wins in play. But over the long term, how do we reimagine a safety net that can be maximally responsive when we find ourselves in a pandemic again? Because if, if this experience has taught us anything, it's that it's COVID-19 and perhaps the next epidemic is expected to be cyclical. And so we will likely be back in a similar situation of high infection rates, even as early as Thanksgiving. And that may coincide with flu season. And so if that happens, how do we modify these programs in meaningful ways? And how do we do that as we look out into the future? When we think big picture, the, the sort of the dollar size of these programs together is about $100 billion. 
that sounds like a lot of money, but it pales in respect to like defense and other major areas of spending. And so if we even doubled that, we are still much, much smaller than what we spend on our defense budget. And so there's a lot that could be done. It's going to take a lot of political will on the part of both Democrats and Republicans. And so on a more local level, just here in Boston or Massachusetts, do you see anything unique to our situation or any areas that we in particular need to address? Well, so one thing that characterizes Boston, which characterizes lots of other major urban cities, is we've got a lot of inequality here. And so Boston, on the one hand, was doing very well with COVID-19 cases, with the exception of one community called Chelsea, where there were very, very high rates. It's mostly black and, and brown, and there were very high rates of COVID-19. And there's some efforts that are happening in Chelsea to try to create a stronger safety net for that community. I think Boston, like many other cities, had challenges around, is there equity in how the school meals are distributed? So what schools did when the, when the shutdowns happened is they didn't completely shut down meal service. They figured out how can we be creative and how can we actually get food into the hands of kids that need them. But that was done on a district by district, sometimes school by school basis. And there was massive variation. And so in some cases you could pick up food for many days at a time. In some cases, food was taken to bus stops, you could pick it up. But the ability of schools to make that as easy as possible made the difference between are you actually getting that food to families or back to your earlier question, is it just more waste going into the system? And to sort of wrap all this up, a lot of times we talk about whenever we go through these sorts of issues, we have systems that experience pressure and we start to see those cracks, we can learn from that and we can grow from that. So where do you see the largest opportunities for growth and positive systemic change that might emerge from this recovery process? I think that one of the things that this pandemic has revealed for every American is the huge inequities that we have around race and income. And for parts of the population, that was already so obvious. But I think for many other parts, it's now in everyone's face and very, very clear. And so I think every American can now understand, what is it like when you go to the grocery store and you can't get what you want? In this case, maybe it's not financial, but what does that feel like? What does it feel like when you can't work from home because you have children there and there's no one to take care of them because it would be a risk to bring someone else in your house. Now, everyone knows what that feels like. Again, it's not a financial concern necessarily, but it's something that we can all acutely be aware of. And what we've seen is that it is, it is, not, it is not chance that we're seeing higher infection and death rates among black and brown populations. It's because of sort of these systemic issues around resources and education and all these different environmental factors that put someone at greater risk for all sorts of comorbid conditions that make someone more vulnerable to COVID-19. So my hope is that while there has been a massive human toll, which is something that is tragic for anyone involved, that this at least shines light on an area where we can really improve as a country and we can use policies and cash transfer programs which are existing and try to enhance them in ways that try to really diminish these really big gaps in sort of the haves and the haves nots. Because what we know from an economic perspective is that poverty is not good for the economy and it's definitely not good for the people who are experiencing it. And so then how do we take the safety net that we have, which is pretty unique among developed countries, and make it stronger so that we don't have all the cracks that you sort of pointed to, which exists now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for stopping by to talk a little bit about the issues. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners. If you'd like to have one of your questions answered by a visiting expert or a Museum of Science educator, you can email them to sciencequestions at mos.org.
If you enjoyed this episode of Pulsar, don't forget to subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or on Spotify, as well as leaving a rating or review for us. That's it for this episode of Pulsar. Join us again soon. <laughs>